So good evening and thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see so many people who've come out this evening um, to hear more about medicine in the 16th, 17th, 18th and 19th centuries in early America. Uh, Dr. Breslau is the author of Lotions, Potions, Pills and Magic, which takes a look at several really interesting themes to do with medicine in, in that time period. Um, Dr. Breslau taught at Morgan State University here in Baltimore for 29 years, um, and she's the author of Witches in the Atlantic World, a historical reader, Tituba, Reluctant Witch of Salem, and she has also published articles in Ethnohistory and the Essex Institute Historical Collection. Thanks so much for coming out this evening, and please welcome Dr. Breslau. Thank you, John, and thank you all for coming. I'm really delighted to be back here at the Pratt Library, and this is always a pleasure for me. <clears throat> the first time I spoke in this room, and this is not the first time, but the first time I spoke in this room, which was quite a few years ago, it was about a, uh, the accused witch in Salem, uh, the, uh, the American Indian woman who was called Tichipa. But today is a much, a much different topic. It does nothing to do with witchcraft, though I do mention witchcraft in the book at one time. I had to do that. Uh, <laughs> there was no way I'd get, get around that. Uh, but this is a much broader subject, and that is the state of health in early America. And that brings me to another thought, and I really must mention that every time someone talks about my book, they bring up the subject of the Affordable Care Act. Now, I'm not going to be talking about that tonight, but if you see parallels between the problems of health care in the early period and the problems of health care in the 20th, 21st century, that's fine. So be it. But I can't answer any questions having to do with, with uh, uh, that law or the current state of medicine in the United States. I have my thoughts about it, but it's, it's not my, my area of expertise. I just also want to warn you that the subject itself and some of the things in the book can be a little on the gory side, and in a couple of cases, it's almost like torture. My subject, the, the, um, the chapter on uh, mental health, I think is one of the most horrifying of all the chapters in, in the book. And I'm not going to be talking about that tonight. I have to choose which of the topics from the book to, to work on. Uh, but the handling of mental illness was quite a problem. So I'm going to be talking about the state of health here in this part of the world before modern scientific medicine and how people treated their physical and mental problems in that, those supposedly good old days. And by the end of my talk, or if you've read the book, you'll know they were not such good old days. What was health, health like in the days before antibiotics, before anyone realized that unwashed hands could cause disease? Were Americans healthy or always sick? How did people care for themselves? And what could they expect from doctors? These are the questions I've tried to uh, approach. Don't always answer them successfully, but at least I've made an attempt. I can say unequivocally that Americans, both black and white, 
were a healthy lot compared to the world, rest of the world at the time. American Indians are a separate case. They had suffered a tremendous loss of life as a result of contact with Europeans at the beginning and the following declining health conditions. But for most white and black people in the British colonies on the North American continent, and I'm very specific about that because the situation was different in the Caribbean uh, and in some of the other colonies, but on the North American continent, life was, was, not, uh, was a lot healthier than, than other places. Life expectancy was better than it was in the old world, and Americans, tend, both black and white, tended to be taller than those in the old world. Now, those are the two, two qualities that are often used for evaluating the, the um, state of health conditions, that is, life expectancy and height. The reason for this improvement was an abundance of food, especially a high-quality protein in the diet. The diet in America was the most nutritious in the world at the time, in the colonial era in particular. They ate food with the highest caloric value and most, uh, <clears throat> sorry, and the tremendous variety that was not available anywhere else. Now that was possible partly because of the availability of land to grow both European as well as American foods, especially the corn, maize, which had a higher caloric value than wheat, which was traditional in, in Europe. It could also be grown under very different conditions and so whether there was a drought <clears throat> or too much water or too cold or too warm, there was always some variety of, of maize that, could, that would, would be ready for a harvest. There were also a lot of different types of beans that were available in the New World that the Old World didn't know about, uh, particularly kidney, navy, pinto beans. Uh, we think of those as... We think of those as such common beans, but they were native to the New World and not available to Europe. And, of course, there were potatoes, both sweet and white potatoes. White potatoes were not too popular in the colonial period. That comes later. But sweet potatoes were, uh, and they were eaten very widely. Animal husbandry grew because there were few natural predators for European uh, domestic animals, Cows, chickens, and pigs, to name a few, uh, and these were n not native to the to the New World. New research, and this is very recent, new research shows that even the diet of slaves was was usually adequate, with more protein than usual in Africa. But in a carryover from African uh, eating habits, those in America tended to eat more vegetables than Europeans, and this probably ingested more vitamins. Uh, even during slavery. Now, I, I have quite a bit in the book about the, the diet of slaves, and I'm not going to be going into that today, but you have to take my word for it at the moment that they were, it was more nutritious than it was in other parts of the world. Now, it was not a balanced diet for anyone, but it was superior to the limited low protein that was common in the British Isles and the rest of Europe. Nor were there any famines in America. There may have been shortages of some foods during the winter months, but we have no record of any year with nothing to eat, whereas in Europe there were regular famines on a cyclical basis. There was usually enough grown and preserved during the season to provide some sustenance during the rest of the year. 
A poor crop of one food could be made up with a better crop of something else. That's the result of variety. It means that something was always available during harvest time. When the New, New England colonies were hit with a wheat blight, during <clears throat> sorry a wheat blight, they turned to more rye and corn. Uh, that was not they were, that were not touched by that uh, problem. They still had plenty of fish and many sources of meat. Their beans and peas added more sustenance. The result of a high-protein diet was that Americans tended to be taller than their forebears in the old world and lived longer until the 19th century. And I will explain, uh, talk a li little bit about that. They were healthier, and the women were more fertile than in Europe. The birth rate was high, and infant mortality was lower than in Europe. Average life expectancy in the American colonies was close to 40. <laughs> that was high in those days. In New England, in a few places, it did come close to 60. Uh, but the average life expectancy was 37 in England and 28 in France at the same time. So when I talk about living longer, uh, I'm talking about a comparison between what, was existed in, what existed in Europe and what existed in the, in the New World. Now, another word about uh, the food, and that is the preservat preservatives in the food. One of the problems with early, the early American diet was a heavy reliance on salt and sugar. Both were needed to preserve the meat, vegetables, and the fruits. There was no refrigeration. The sugar and salt may have added to tooth decay and heart problems, but those were minor considerations at the time when life was so short. Can you hold your questions until later? No matter. Americans did not fare very well when compared with today, either in life expectancy, height, infant mortality, or the sense of feeling well. It's estimated that even in America in those early days, about 40% of those born died before the age of five. <clears throat> People were almost always sick, always complaining of pain and discomfort, discomfort of one kind or another. And you read their letters and you get this constant lit litany of their health problems and their discomforts. We have no, no idea of the constant absence of feeling good. If they did not have arthritic pain, even when they were young, they were constipated or at least aware of an uneasy stomach or a loss of teeth and swollen gums, or breathing difficulty, or the itch they didn't bathe. Or they were deathly ill with malaria, smallpox, the flu, typhoid, or measles. Epidemics of these deadly diseases were constant in every life, and if not always there, the fear of them was, as were complications and the after-effects of those diseases if they survived. Now, what could doctors do to help people to, or cure them of those deadly diseases and other health problems? To understand medical care, let us start with a visit with a doctor and his patients in the 18th century. And we'll choose 18th century Maryland because I have a very good example in the book. There was a Dr. William Wooten living in Anne Arundel County. In 1743, he treated the Cann family near Londontown. Mrs. Kahn, or Kahn, the name is spelled C-A-N-N. Mrs. Kahn, in October, complained of, and I quote, a long-continued intermittent fever. For this condition, Dr. Wooten prescri prescribed a vomit and gave her doses of the bark. 
The bark was cinchona bark that contained quinine and was known to cure malaria, one of the very few therapies that actually cured a disease in the 17th and 18th centuries. The intermittent fever was a description of the odd chills and fevers characteristic of malaria. One of the children suffered from an asthma and perineumonias, an upper respiratory or lung condition that he treated with a large pot of expectorating electorary, a sweetened tonic to aid in clearing mucus. But he also provided a blister for the child, raising a blister by putting heated cups on, her, on the child's skin to supposedly draw out the disease in the form of pus. Pus was good. It brought out the morbid matter causing the disease. Dr. Wooten also recommended for the child a glister, that is, an enema, and further cupping. Like the vomit, I told you it could be gory. <laughs> like the vomit for Mrs. Kahn, the glister and blisters were designed to remove the substance from the body that supposedly was causing the difficulties. When the blister was broken, the resulting pus was drained, and it was believed the disease left with the pus. The vomit, the enema, and the blister were all therapies familiar to everyone in the Western world. He could have used venesection, that is, cut into a vein and drawn out blood, but that was not recommended for children and was not often applied in the 19th century. It became more popular in the 19th century under the influence of Benjamin Rush. The theory behind those therapies had held pretty constant for over 2,000 years, expounded first by the Greeks, in particular Hippocrates, and slightly modified by the Roman Galen in the second, second, second century common era, the theory was that disease or ill health was the result of an imbalance in four humors or qualities in the body, blood, black or yellow bile, or phlegm. The doctor's role was to restore the balance by depleting the offending humor or increasing unnecessary humor through diet or some drug. That is what Dr. Wooten attempted to do with his vomits, enemas, and blisters, as well as his pills and potions. Illness meant that something was out of balance within the individual and had to be treated in accordance with the theory. Little had changed over the centuries except for a change of emphasis on which conditions and symptoms required which particular form of depletion. Diagnosis depended on the symptoms, whether there was fever, whether it was intermittent, whether there was nausea, constipation, a pain in the gut or the head or the foot. But the depletion of some kind was the usual treatment. Dr. Wooten was quite orthodox in his treatment, and he was called back to the family at other times for other illnesses with similar treatments. We know about Dr. Wooten and his therapies because when he died, his widow sued his former patients for their unpaid bills. Those treatments are itemized in the legal records in the Maryland archives. Uh, and those legal records are a major source of information on medical treatments because of the near absence of surviving doctor ledgers for that early colonial period. There are some surviving medical account books in other colonies like Massachusetts, but there are none that I know of in the state of, uh, of Maryland. The public records... Do, ex do still exist, and for those, uh, for this state, are housed in the Maryland Hall of Records in Annapolis, <clears throat> a major source of information on anything to do with the colonial, uh, the early American period. Most people, however, 
seldom resorted to doctors to treat their ailments. Women, for instance, relied on midwives for childbirth. Male doctors of any kind were rare and expensive. The bulk of the population never saw a doctor and depended on their own home rem remedies or the herbal law of the community, infused by some magical practices such as taking the medicine at a certain uh, phase of the moon or turning a spoon upside down. One of my favorite remedies for a nosebleed was to let a drop of blood fall on a knife that would magically cut the bleeding. Knife was important. I remem remember that one in particular because when I was a child, the knife was put on the back of my neck. Many of the old folklore practices were modified over the years as people forgot what the original magic was supposed to do. You can probably think of others and other practices in your family with explanations that make no sense unless you trace it back to the original magical rituals. And I'm not an expert on them, but you probably will know them uh, on your own. Apart from these peculiar rituals, folk medicine was not much different from what doctors learned in school or as an apprentice. <clears throat> All believed in the doctrine of signatures. If the herb resembled the problem, it would cure it. So hair-like herbs were used for baldness and worm-like for worms and snake root for snake bite. The doctors also relied on more complicated medication, which was not necessarily a good thing. All used herbs, spices, or other growing things, but the more complicated pills and potions concocted by the apothecary for the doctor could include more chemical and mineral ingredients, such as, and this is, these are common in the uh, medications, lead, sulfuric acid, mercury, opium, turpentine. All held to the theory that some depletion of the bad humors were necessary. General agreement on that. Everyone recommended purges with laxatives, called a physic, for most ailments, from bleeding piles to depression, and a variety of fevers and, of course, all kinds of digestive disorders, including dysentery, which was called bloody flux. If bleeding was not recommended, then raising blisters on the skin would have to do. Now, none of this resembles modern medicine, but it fit with the theory regarding disease at the time. Thus, if all diseases were a result of an imbalance of the four humors, and I'll remind you they were blood, black, or yellow bile, or phlegm, the offending substance had to be removed either through uh, the skin by bleeding, sweating, or pus from a blister, through the mouth by salivation or vomiting, or through some other opening of the body, thus the purges. The evidence of the cure was in the reaction of the body, and there was always a reaction. The medicine worked to eliminate something from inside, and so the patient supposedly was cured. That many people died in spite of the uh, medicine was irrelevant. Did some survive these therapies? Yes. Survival was most likely due to the body's ability to heal, aided by the placebo effect. That is, the belief in the power of the medicine, even if it does you no darn good. Nevertheless, you can't heal a fever by bleeding a patient. You can't cure diphtheria by raising a blister. You can't cure dysentery or smallpox or cholera by using a laxative. Those were the remedies used. There were times when such treatments were either counterproductive or just hastened death. That is what happened to George Washington who had a throat infection that made it difficult to breathe. So he was bled and bled 
and purged, and so weakened that he died faster than otherwise. That may have been a good thing because he suffered less. A kind of euthanasia, if you're into that kind of remedy. That was not the intention, and the doctor would have been horrified at being accused of hastening death. They thought they were doing the right thing. All the excessive bleeding and purging proved to be deadly when cholera appeared in the 19th century. It's not unusual. When, when a new disease appears and old remedies are applied, it has a terrible effect. That was the Indian experience when smallpox and measles appeared as very new and unfamiliar diseases in the 16th century in America. Indian methods of treating disease called for sweat baths and cold water plunges that are dangerous in the case of smallpox and similar viral or bacterial infections. Plus, Indian rituals associated with curing included the presence of many people who were then vulnerable to catching the disease. Such practices spread smallpox throughout the community. The old remedies not only did not cure, but cures pr- caused problems and contributed to the death rate. Something similar happened when cholera first appeared in the United States in 1832. So we're now moving into the 19th century. It was a disease, cholera was a disease that originated in Asia, in Asia and slowly spread to Europe early in the 19th century. It then appeared in the Western Hemisphere. The first case in the United States was noted in, in 1832 in New York City. On June 26th of that year, a most unfortunate but unnamed Irish immigrant living in the city slums died from the disease. The records tell us that his two children rapidly followed him in death. His wife lingered for a few more days until she too passed away, killed by the pathogens causing cholera, and quite possibly helped to die because of the therapies used. They would have been bled and given laxatives. Within a week, nine more people in the slums were sick of the disease, and of that group, one survived. By December of that year, 1832, 3,000 people had died of cholera in New York City, mostly those living in the slums. Those who could afford to left the city and were spared. With the most vulnerable dead and the affluent gone, the disease disappeared from the city for a while, at the end of the year, to return in later years. The disease raced throughout the country, and even when it seemed to die down, it would reappear the following year. There were additional major epidemics of cholera throughout the country in 1849 and 1854 in both rural and urban areas. Cholera, which I'm sure you've been hearing about recently because it's a problem in Haiti, it's a waterborne disease, something that was not known at the time. The pathogen lives not in the air, but in water, and anyone downstream of rivers polluted with human waste were vulnerable to the disease. It does not require person-to-person contact, nor in the case of yellow fever or malaria does it require mosquitoes as vectors. Hands that have touched contaminated water or bodily secretions from the sick can communicate it. The disease leads to extreme dehydration and most often death. The only remedy is to restore the fluids and electrolytes, and today there is a vaccine to prevent it. At the time, there was no known remedy, and the usual treatment for fevers and diseases was counterproductive, that is, to bleed and cause some other evacuation from the body, 
which did nothing but deplete the fluids even more. Thus, orthodox medicine was a killer in the middle of the 19th century. Baltimore was hit by the cholera during the second epidemic in 1849. It appeared at the end of May and died down at the beginning of September. Now, this is an interesting case because there's no official report of this epidemic. The Board of Health denied that there was an epidemic, and there were no reports in the newspapers I consulted. They all report on the epidemic in Philadelphia in 1849 and given exact numbers, but I could find nothing about the epidemic in, uh, in Baltimore. On the other hand, there's an interesting report from a Dr. Thomas Buckler, who was a physician at the Baltimore Almshouse. That was the poor house. The Almshouse was located just north of the most populated area, near Biddle Street, <laughs> north of the city. Uh, Buckler provides a detailed analysis of the numbers affected by cholera in the Almshouse that summer and his methods of caring for the sick in the infirmary. And if I hadn't run across his report, I would know nothing about this. But it's, an it's a report that has never been uh, uh, reprinted. It exists only for the early period. There were 669 people in the almshouse, both men and women, and both black and white. 240 had become sick with cholera, and almost one-third of those sick died. That is, almost 13% of the population in the almshouse died of cholera during those three summer months. Buckland noted that once sickened, black people and white women had a slightly higher rate of mortality, but men overall suffered a higher rate of disease. He reasoned that because the men worked outside, there was something in the air that caused their illness. It was the bad air caused by open drains and stagnant pools, he thought, he introduced drastic cleanup measures to cover the drains and had the ponds emptied and all parts of the building disinfected with lime. He also had heard of the possibility of invisible living creatures causing disease and tried an experiment by hanging plates of glass coated with sugar and starch over the drains to attract what was called an amicular matter. His microscope revealed nothing. So he rejected that theory. And of course, very soon after, we would have the germ theory of disease. So it was an idea that was floating around, but nobody could actually see it and didn't understand it until Louis Pasteur in France. And that was in the 1850s. The highest death rate in the almshouse among black men, he thought was due to their general poor health because many had recently suffered from typhoid, which had... Um, weakened them so much that they were, he thought they were more susceptible to cholera. Buckler believed that diet might influence the disease and omitted fresh fruit and vegetables from the inmates' food. Because cholera often appeared in hot weather when fruits and vegetables became available, many blamed it on those foods. That is quite possible because water and fertilizer containing, containing the cholera bacillus often contaminated the fields and uncooked fruits could be a menace. The recommended diet then consisted of meat, rice, potatoes, and bread, with the addition of coffee or tea and a glass of whiskey. Both the whiskey and tea probably aided in resistance to the disease. Drunks did not get cholera. <laughs> Nobody made the connection, but he, he gave the whiskey because that was what people expected, and so they had their portion of whiskey every day.
Once these hygienic and food changes were instituted, the rate of sickness in Buckler's Infirmary dropped. Even the typhoid and dysentery that plagued the almshouse declined, and the health of the medical students who cared for the patients also improved. I should point out that the therapy was traditional. The patients were bled and given calomel, which has mercury in it, as a laxative. They were also given chopped ice for those who complained of a dry mouth. Buckler believes he had found a solution to the epidemics, epidemics that killed so many people. He became a proponent of public health measures for the city, cleaned the streets, remove all decomposing substances, build underground sewers, because the sewers were all uh, pipes that just simply ran along the street, and if it rained, whatever was in the sewer washed out into the streets and into the basements. Clean the streets, remove all decomposing substances, build underground sewers, and most important, find a better source of drinking water than the contaminated Jones Falls. The city did take some action that year to clean the streets, but missed most of the alleys and areas behind the houses, which were the dirtiest. And contaminated water from the Jones Falls continued to be pumped through the city. The almshouse itself did not get its water supply from the Jones Falls, so obviously the source of contamination was not from the water supply. <clears throat> Buckler was not successful in gaining any permanent public health measures to protect the city against future epidemics. That would not come until years after the Civil War. Baltimore was not unusual in that respect. The beginning of major public health measures can be dated to the latter part of the 19th century. In this earlier period, little was done, even though the urban population was growing and the public health problems had become acute in all cities. Doctors like Buckler and a handful of other proponents of public health measures had no power to influence the political leadership. Physicians had lost the political clout that they had had in the earlier century. Now, my book does not concentrate on Maryland experiences, but I thought you would be interested in those occurrences. So I pulled a few out just to, to related to lives in the state. Unlike many other states, Maryland did not have a state hospital, hospital to, care, to care for the sick the sick poor. It depended on the infirmaries in the almshouses, which eventually grew into public hospitals. There were private hospitals connected to the medical schools, but they required a fee, and so they attracted only middle-class people uh, and had to get the approval of the doctors teaching at the schools. The doctors did not want the poor or black people in their hospitals, and so the number of patients was always very low. On the other hand, hospitals everywhere were notorious for their high death rates. I must point out that there were very few institutions to house the poor or other kinds of hospitals during the colonial era. That was a 19th century development. Before the revolution, people were cared for in their homes and any surgery necessary was performed in the home. Women expected to give birth in their own beds. Midwives and the new man midwives came to them. For those who were too poor to pay for medical services and without families to care for them when sick, the local community paid a caretaker who sometimes was a physician or a midwife or just a willing neighbor to provide health care and assistance in their homes. It was a public obligation to care for the unfortunates in the community. 
The number was small during the colonial era, and strangers without skills or family were often warned out of a community to prevent them from becoming public charges. Only long-term residents could expect public assistance. By the end of the 18th century, the years after the Revolution, the number of such unfortunates had grown beyond the local capacity, and they could no longer prevent vagrants from entering the town. As a result, communities began to institutionalize the poor in almshouses that also contained infirmaries. Those almshouses gradually attained independent status as hospitals to care for the poor. Thus, most hospitals were designed for the poor originally. There were some that served all classes, like the Colonial Philadelphia Hospital, but they were unusual. Doctors did create private hospitals for paying patients, as in Maryland, but those served very few people. So during this period in early American medicine, hospitals and almshouses generally served those too poor to take care of themselves, with doctors volunteering their services. Such an appointment to the hospital raised the stature of the doctor and helped him to attract other fee-paying patients, even if he received nothing for working in the hospital. What were these hospitals like? First of all, they were dangerous places to be in. Primitive institutions that mixed those with contagious diseases with, with those requiring surgery and others giving birth. The same doctors treated all, no hand washing or clothing change in between. Women giving birth and those undergoing surgery were especially hard hit by infections from the caregivers. No one with a choice went to a hospital. It was a place of infection and death. In Dr. Buckler's almshouse, he reported that eight of 10 women died soon after giving birth in one particular year. He then removed all the women who were due to give birth to put them elsewhere. He knew there was something that was killing them in the almshouse. If a doctor recommended surgery in a hospital, it was performed without consent. Medical ethics were as primitive as a hospital setting. Both slaves on the plantations and the poor in public hospitals were subject to experimental surgeries. They had no choice in the matter and I mentioned several incidents of such unwanted experiments in the book. There's not much positive that can be said about the state of medicine and medical care in the early period of American history. What is surprising is that here in the United States, where science and technology were working in everyday life, so little was advanced in medicine. From the cotton gin to interchangeable parts, from steam engines to new methods of preserving food, from manufacturing clocks to machine tools, Americans borrowed ideas from Europe and added new improvements. Science and technology, with the emphasis on technology, fascinated Americans and incurred experiments and innovations, but not in medicine. Bleeding, purging, and mercury poisoning have become the emblems of orthodox medicine in the 19th century. There had been one notable breakthrough in healthcare in this part of the world before the advent of modern medicine, and I must mention this one because I'm always asked, well, didn't anything good happen? Well, yeah, there was one, one good thing, and that is the use of inoculation for smallpox. This required injecting the pus from someone with the disease into the body of a non-immune person to give him a mild form of the disease to create immunity. A clergyman, Cotton Mather, a man who believed in witches, 
had learned about it from his African slave, and he introduced it to the English colonies in the 1720s, a practice that was already widely known in Africa and the Middle East. Inoculation, I must point out, actually caused the disease, but usually in a milder form than catching it with what they call the natural way. It was introduced in Europe about the same time in the early 18th century and was widely used when faced with an epidemic. Nonetheless, smallpox epidemics continued to harass the population because not everyone was inoculated and many doctors refused to use it. Smallpox inoculation is to be distinguished, what, distinguished from what came to be known as vaccination. Vaccination was a process developed in England in the 1790s, that is, uh, 70 years after the introduction of inoculation, <clears throat> and was accepted easily because of, the, uh, uh, because of that inoculation had paved the way. Vaccination had the advantage of not causing the disease, but only giving a limited immunity. The disadvantage was that the immunity lasted only about seven years, and many doctors also rejected the, its use. It was not used as a routine preventive measure until the 20th century. And quite a few of you in this room remember the vaccination when you were kids. I should mention that anesthetics were available, but that doctors seldom used them. Ether was known in the, in the 18th century, and an American developed chloroform in the 19th century but neither was important in medical care until the following century, so they don't figure in our history of early medicine except in dentistry. Ether was used by dentists, but not for other surgeries, and seldom for childbirth in this country, though England, in England they began to use it because Queen Victoria insisted on chloroform when she was having her seventh child in the, 70, in the 1850s. Fortunately, there were alternatives to the doctor's deadly medicine. Partly as a result of the, of the distasteful medical therapies, many people looked for alternative methods of healing. The 19th century is known for the appearance of many such alternatives, from homeopathy to hydropathy to new botanical concoctions and lifestyle gurus like John Harvey Kellogg and Sylvester Graham. There was a proliferation of published self-help medical manuals and entrepreneurial drug manufacturers who created a variety of sugar-coated pills, some of which were innocuous and others with dangerous ingredients. There was no FDA or medical licensing boards or any control over the growth of these new kinds of medical providers or even the old providers. And the old providers probably did more harm than the, than the new. Such was the situation of the medical world by the middle of the 19th century, where I end my story of health in early America. I do not attempt a discussion of the Civil War. That is too big a topic, but the treatments and unhygienic surgeries could not have been good for the wounded and sick. I suspect that many of the deaths were due not so much to the wounds themselves, but to the treatments by doctors during the war. So I skipped the Civil War, but I do have a few words about the future. I have an epilogue. Little would change in the area of health and medical care until after the establishment of the first graduate medical school in the United States in 1893, here in Baltimore, at Johns Hopkins University. It would become the model for all other schools early in the 20th century, 
but the poorly trained of the 19th century continued to practice for a long time. Only gradually would the medical world change as it accepted the germ theory of disease and became more oriented toward laboratory science and the use of clinical trials. I might point out that in spite of Dr. Buckler, very few doctors in the United States accepted the germ theory of disease until the 20th century. Almost incomprehensible, but that's, that's what it was. And also in the 20th century, just as important, both the states and the federal government began to play a role in public health programs, partly as a result of new vaccines coming from Europe and partly because of public health measures, life expectancy grew from 40 at the end of the 19th century to 60 at the beginning of World War II. Antibiotics and new surgical and diagnostic techniques followed, and today we expect to live way into our 70s and coming close to 80 in this country, although that's a little shorter than the Europeans and Japan. They uh, are doing better than we are. So health was not good in the good old days. We certainly have it a lot better today, healthier and longer lived. If, like me, you study what health was like in the old days, you become very grateful for those changes. And I thank you, modern medicine, and all that went into giving me a more comfortable and less painful existence. And I hope we have time for questions. There's been a hand back there. Hello. Uh, the first one, I th is this true that the, the reason why the average is so low in the Roman times and ancient times and also until, you know, 19th century is because if someone died in childbirth, you have to average that into someone that lived to be 80. So yes. if you have zero and 80, then the average is 40, right? Is that oh, how yes. it goes? Oh, yes, that's and true. And so many died in childbirth in those, up until the 20th century, right? Mm -hmm. And for most parts of the world, about half the babies born died before the age of five. Uh, I mean, the fact that only 40% died in this country meant we had progressed beyond the past and, and other places. Yes. Uh, I mean, there were some people who lived long. I mean, George Washington lived a long time. Uh, Benjamin Franklin lived into his 90s. Yeah. Thomas Jefferson lived a long life. They are exceptional. Yeah. Uh, most people w would have died in, by their 50s. 50 was old age in this, in this early period. And, and, and the second question was um, sort of like a, a history major and all, and I remember the president's. When Garfield got shot, they say that he died more from the ineptitude of the, the surgeons because the bullet was, if they would have um, washed their hands or whatever, <laughs> they could have maybe saved them, but they, were, they didn't wash their hands at all, and all these doctors kept putting their hands inside of his, his uh, wound. And that gave the infection, and he died like a couple months later, I think. Yeah, and that was in the 1880s. So as late as the 1880s, doctors were still American doctors were still refusing to wash their hands and using very unhygienic practices, whereas there had been all kinds of studies in Europe at the time showing that this was a major cause of death during surgery. So to bring that to modern times, doctors still have an abysmal hand-washing percentage. And you should always make sure, if you're around a doctor, you're watching wash their hands. They are less than 30% in a hospital setting. 
of washing their hands between patients. Just FYI. <laughs> I have no comment to make. <laughs> uh, when did doctors first start talking about cancer? Oh, they, even during this period, cancer was, was a problem. Not a big problem, but yes. They knew about cancer. They knew that that, that was something you had to cut out of the body. But there was, that was all they could do. Uh, and, of course, any surgery would be done without an anesthetic. So that's through the 18th? Oh, oh yes. Oh, yes. To go way back to the ancient times. That's, it's not, it's, that's not a new malady. That, that, uh, it is known, was known in the early, uh, the Greeks and the Romans. Um, so that we, we don't... There's a book, The Emperor of All Maladies, and that's all about cancer going all the way back to the Roman and further. It just wasn't a big problem because people didn't, most people didn't live, live long enough. And, and, and diagnosis was so uh, vague that it may have been cancer and they wouldn't have known. Uh, they just knew that there was something wrong with the body, and so they would bleed and purge and vomit and do all the things that they usually did. And usually did, and the patient died, and they decided that the patient just uh, was not following directions or doing something wrong, and therefore they couldn't cure him. Can you talk a little bit about the training of doctors in the uh, 18th and 19th century? Well, in the 18th century, most doctors went to college. They were educated people. The training itself, uh, they would learn something about anatomy. They would learn about the pharmaceuticals. And by the way, uh, I really was dependent upon the 18th and 17th century pharmaceutical books because they list all the medications that are being given and what they use for. <laughs> so I would look them up on the, in the pharma. When I would see these doctor uh, ledgers, I would look them up and see what, exactly what they were treating. Otherwise, I wouldn't know what they were treating because they don't tell you. They just tell you what they did. But if you look up what they did, then you have some idea of what the medications were. So they'd learn about the pharmaceuticals. They would learn about uh, how, to how to grow various uh, plants to use for medications. Uh, they would learn something about uh, amputation and surgery. Um, but for the most part, in the 18th century, in order to learn those things, most doctors had gone to college or at least had some advanced uh, education. And a good part of what made them successful as doctors was the fact that people admired them. They were educated uh, humanitarian individuals and therefore they could be trusted to, to treat people. And the usual assumption is the doctor was right, the patient was always wrong. But by the 19th century, that had really deteriorated. Um, very few Americans went to European universities to be trained as doctors. Instead, what we had was barely trained doctors establishing their own schools. And most of these schools had a two-year program. You went to school and you listened to lectures for three months. And then you came back the following year and you listened to the same lectures for another three months. No anatomy, no laboratory, no knowledge. You read the pharmaceutical books, which would tell you what medications to use, but no understanding of the works of the human body. And there were, in the, by the 18th century, doctors knew about the circulation of blood. They understood some of the workings of some of the organs. 19th century doctors had very, very little knowledge of the human body, which is one reason why these, these alternative medical people 
became so popular. They probably knew more than the, the doctors. Many of them had done some, some investigation on their own. Um, but when I talk about deterioration of, of, medical, of medical training, that's what had happened. And you didn't even have to be literate. Here at the University of Maryland, when it had its medical school, well, it wasn't a university, but the first medical school here in Maryland did not require literacy for entrance. <laughs> Just money. These were money-making prop uh, uh, proposals and money-making institutions. Uh, and, and in order to attract students, doctors would continually lower the requirements. And many of the colleges that had uh, medical schools associated also reduced their requirements in order to compete with these money-making diploma mills, because that's basically what they were. And they're still teaching in the 20th century. I mean, they're still practicing in the 20th century. There was a... They, they all, uh, I want to make a comment... Uh, I heard this before more than once. One out of two people that die, one out of two people that go to a hospital, one out of two people that die, die in a hospital. <laughs> so that's pretty, that says a lot, I guess. You catch a lot of things in a hospital, even MRSA, all these diseases now. But, and I also want to ask you a question about, um, um, I know Henry VIII, when he was dying, uh, he was overweight, but he had these leeches. Was that an effective means of, of of medicine? Yes. If you didn't blister, if you didn't bleed, you could use leeches to remove the, the blood from the body. It was just another method of, of removing the blood. Now, we use leeches today, but not for that purpose. <laughs> it was just another depletion method. Anything that would remove, remove whatever was causing, they thought was causing the problem in the body, it just had to eliminate something. Uh, so we call that depletion procedures. Oh, I must tell you about the Southern uh, practices. Uh, just brought this to mind. The Southern white doctors decided that bleeding was not a good idea, and so they, they questioned the Northern uh, and Western medical schools that were teaching doctors to bleed. That was the other thing they were taught in those schools, how to bleed a patient. And the Southerners decided that bleeding wasn't good. They were better off using mercury. So mercury poisoning really became the, the, the sign of uh, medical care in the South in the 19th century. Did the uh, atrocities of the Civil War make any changes in medicine? As far as I know, I, I have not read of any improvements in medicine that come out of the Civil War or the First World War. The, well, doctors themselves would get more practice in amputation, mostly. But they didn't wash their hands, and gangrene was always a problem. And American doctors were accused of using amputation too often. So, uh, I mean, they would do that rather than tr trying other methods. But no, as far as I know, there's nothing that comes out of any of the wars until the Second World War in this country. So it seems like that it's really recent that we have many of the, the cures and things that we have. That we, mm -hmm. I mean, up until almost when I was born, uh, they had almost nothing. <laughs> and what we did have came from Europe. You know, all the vaccines that were introduced um, 
in the late 19th and early 20th century came from European laboratories, European doctors, uh, antibiotics, the sulfur drugs, and then uh, penicillin are both European uh, innovations. And all of that is just before the Second World War. But no, nothing, I can't say nothing. Uh, we did have an American doctor that discovered that yellow fever came from mosquitoes. <laughs> Couldn't do very much about it, but he did discover that. But for the most part, American doctors are not scientifically inclined until after the, the Second World War. Um, Hopkins may have been the, the model, but it, could not, it took a while to catch up to what the Europeans were doing. Uh, and, it, of course, they couldn't educate that many doctors. It's a small number coming out of the Hopkins uh, University, and then the other universities try to catch up. But it's a slow process. And so our real scientific medicine in this country is in the last 60 years, 60, 70 years. Yes. <laughs> Don't tell that to a doctor. They think that we have a long tradition of, of scientific medicine in this country. I just read a piece of fiction that would reinforce what you told us about um, innovations coming from Europe rather than the U.S. Um, Pat Barker, in Toby's room, talked about um, Queen's Hospital in London, which became an innovator in... Uh, facial reconstruction and plastic surgery as a result of what they were trying to do with uh, soldiers who had been wounded during the, sec during the First, First World, World War. War. Yeah. What about uh, Dr. Charles Drew who taught at Morgan? I'm, um, I'm sorry, I didn't What about Dr. Charles Drew who taught at Morgan? Blood plasma. Uh, the name doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Now, I'm, I'm not a 20th century historian, and right. so uh, it, what, what, what did he do? Uh, well, he uh, developed blood plasma. Um, That's... Hospitals didn't have... Yeah, but isn't that, isn't that post-Second World War? I thought it was... Uh, I thought he taught at Morgan in the 20s. Dr. Cripps, who is a specialist on the, in, the, in the era. <laughs> and they say, when, when did he develop it? During the Second World War, okay. Well, uh, he didn't get a lot of attention until the war because his work was saving lives by then. So Dr. Cripps says that Dr. Drew did not get a lot of attention at the time. But this is Second World War, just the beginning of real, of, of real innovation by Americans. Are there references to polio in any of the early literature? There are all kinds of question references to various types of paralysis, but I don't know if it's been uh, diagnosed as polio. Uh, but I imagine it would have been. I mean, polio was not a new disease in the 20th century. It just that um, it, it just seemed to have become an epidemic in the uh, 1940s and 50s. But um, I, I really don't know, but I do know that there are very, various uh, paralytic problems uh, that occur, and doctors do refer to them. And there are references to them in this, this, these pharmacopias. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for coming.